You're listening to episode 148 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And we're still in Dragon Hall. We are, week two. Yeah, so expect lots of background noises and strange interruptions because that's how it works around here. So it is the 28th of May 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording and NNF is in full swing. It is, yes. Our City of Literature weekend is starting today, Friday the 28th. So uh, whether you can join us in person in Norwich or online, we've got a fantastic number of events coming up across the weekend. We've got an event tonight with Abir Mukherjee and Derek Awusu over on YouTube as well as an in-person and virtual readathon tomorrow at midday called Page Against the Machine. So you can find out more about that on the website. We've also got the Harriet Martineau lecture happening on Sunday evening at 7pm British time. You had a preview of that, didn't you? I did. We have a, we had a fantastic preview of it last night, actually, for some very special guests. And I have to say it is absolutely fantastic. So do make sure you register in advance to watch that. This week as well, we've also already had three podcasts, which you might have already encountered. So Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, we had Weather With You podcasts, which featured writers talking about how the last year has has changed their approach to writing. So do make sure you tune in and listen to those conversations with Kerry Nidokati, Abir Mukherjee and Derek Awusu. You met Derek, didn't you? Because he was staying here for his residency. He was, yes. So we have been working with Derek for the past year since he won the Desmond Elliott Prize last year, 2020, for That Reminds Me, which is a absolutely fabulous book. And he was joining us last week. He stayed in our cottage on the site of Dragon Hall to work on a a next book. And uh, it was fantastic to have him. It was really lovely. And we've now got another writer in residence. One of our emerging translators, Anam Zafar, is with us currently too. So on the show today, we have the last of our Imagining the City series of podcasts, this time featuring Lynn Buckle talking to Flo Reynolds. Lynn was joining us from Dublin back in February as one of our writers in residence alongside four other writers living in UNESCO cities across the world. So do make sure you head over to the NCW website and under What's On Hit Imagining the City to read all about their residencies and check out some of the creative work they came up with. Yeah, it's funny listening to these podcasts, uh, which were recorded back in February, mm. I think, when this was happening, when... It absolutely couldn't have anyone staying at Dragon Hall due to lockdown rules and obviously international travel is not yet a possibility really. But it's lovely now that we do have people coming through the building and mm. whether it's members of the public with events or people staying in the cottage, it's just these little little bits of opening up to the world again. Things are feeling very different to how they were even a few short months ago. So uh, fingers crossed we're all heading in the right direction. So in the chat with Flo, Lynn talks about how reading critically actually ruined the experience of writing for a while. Oh no! Yes, uh, which I think is quite a common thing when you first start paying attention to how something is made. Mm. Um, To be honest, even studying, when I studied English literature at university, spending all that time really, you know, studying those texts so closely, it made reading quite difficult afterwards. Yeah, you have to kind of retrain yourself to then be able to actually enjoy things again. Also how she incorporates climate writing and the notion of positive climate solutions into her fiction, and also how moles caused a major headache in the writing of Lynn's first book. I'm intrigued. I know. Yeah, listen listen on to find out why moles were such such a problem. Blooming moles. I know. So let's hand over to Lynn chatting with Flo. 
Lynn, thank you so much for joining us on The Writing Life today. I've been so looking forward to talking to you. Um, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Flo. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's great to be able to still meet, even though we're still in our different countries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been really looking forward to today because I have been um, digging into some of your work. You're, you're on a virtual residency with us at the moment and you had a really exciting debut published a couple of years ago and a new book coming out a bit later this year, which we'll talk a bit more about shortly. But there's, yeah, there's so many huge themes, techniques, your life as a writer, so many questions I'd love to ask you today. So thank you so much for being with us. But I, I just wanted to start by asking you, how did you begin writing? What, what first inspired you and what were those early days? Well, I have to say I didn't start writing until six years ago. I'd always been a voracious reader. And like most writers and readers, you know, I, I, I kind of read competitively as a child in school and all through those ages. So I don't think I really kind of absorbed much about how they were written at all. And when I first started writing six years ago, it ruined how I read. You know, it ruined my pleasure of reading for a short while because I suddenly realised, you know, how books were structured, how, how narratives worked. And, and, and suddenly it completely destroyed every book I read because I was pulling it apart and reading it um, closely rather than skim reading to get the story. You know, there's more. I read, suddenly realised there was more to it. So I first started writing six years ago, mainly because up until that point, I'd been a visual artist. So I was very used to observing all the time, very, very closely and observing people, landscapes, atmospheres, visual stories anyway. And I suppose my circumstances changed six years ago and I lost my studio and had a lot of sickness in the family. So I was always sitting in hospitals with family members and it just seemed easier to be creative on the laptop or a tablet writing, you know, because I can't take my art stuff with me. So it start, my writing started out of circumstance, really. And within a year after one failed attempt, I had written The Groundsman. Wow. <laughs> so then it took, it, 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 it took a while, though, before they, I'd sent it out, I think, seven publishers too early. Mm. You know, I hadn't really gone back over it, you know, beginner's mistake. So I joined a writing group th at that point and we all helped each other through it. And I still I'm still a member of that writing group in County Kildare. And we all helped each other with our writing and they gave me the confidence to work on it again and send it out again. First time I sent it out, it got accepted. So um, that was really encouraging. And that's the groundsman that was published by Epoch Press in 2018. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. That's so, so interesting to hear that it's it's happened in quite a short time for you that you've you've had such, such success in only six years. And I was going to ask you, at what point did you first feel comfortable and sort of justified in calling yourself a writer? But it, it's just gone by in a flash by the sound of it. Well, it has gone by in a flash, but I think I, it was about a year after I published The Groundsman before I felt like I could call myself a writer because <laughs> everybody else was saying, oh, but you didn't write short stories and you didn't do a creative writing degree and you, you didn't get any awards for anything before that. And um, so, yeah, I, I did feel a, a quite a big fraud for a long time. <laughs> 
Uh, well, that's that's just astonishing, though, that you've published this fantastic literary novel with a really, you know, well well esteemed and highly regarded independent press, <laughs> and a fantastic start to a career. Well, I, I, independent press is a great for that. You know, they they really do take on they're prepared to take on new and challenging work and and do that extra bit of editorial. You know, they they did say to me when they first started editing with me that it was obvious I hadn't done a creative writing masters or anything they, they could they could see my faults and they kind of they they baby stepped me through it you know they taught me and that, and I have gone on loads of creative writing courses since I have to say because I realized where my faults lay but yeah then and an epoch press are actually scouting right now at the Irish Writers Centre in Ireland as part of the date with an agent they go there every year scouting for new talent and uh, most of their authors are Irish but they, they take English ones too Fantastic. Yeah. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think independent presses often are able to take that risk. And, you know, if they see the spark in the book, sometimes they're more able to snap it up and, and go with it. I wanted to ask you a little bit about The Groundsman, actually. I've been dipping into it ahead of our talk today. It's a really atmospheric book, I would say. We're very close in the the inter interior worlds of the several characters whose narratives we flip between throughout the book. And there's really, you know, the, the most uncensored, the most painful, the most, how should I put it, sort of, I, I suppose, their darkest thoughts. We we see them, they're there on the page. We're, we're reading them just as they're living them. What drew you to that style? Well, I suppose it I immediately started writing the first character. I, I had all the characters in my head to begin with for a while before I actually put them onto paper. And, you know, I knew them pretty well. They were running around my mind having conversations with each other. So I could get into character quite easily. And I suppose I started writing in one character and I hated being in that person's head so much because he was an unpleasant character. And so I'd suddenly break then and start a new chapter being in another head and being that character. And I think the story needed that. It needed the light as well as the dark. It needed the little Cassies, the little children and their little, even though you feel she's a very tragic little small child, you know, you, you, she, she brings lightness to the book and a, and a breather for the reader. So, um, yeah, I, I just got straight, in, straight into that straight away. But I needed the five points of view to be able to tell a fuller story because if I'd stayed in the one head the whole time, it would have been a very limited um, story, really. So I needed to, to, to branch out by being into the, into the other characters as well and giving each of those their space to tell. Sometimes they tell the same event from their own point of view. So with, we're reading it twice over, but that can get repetitive. So I didn't do that too often. Um, you know, I would try to change the event for the next person, person character who was who was speaking. But yeah, you you, you do get in right into those characters uh, in places you don't want to be sometimes. Yeah, I think definitely a, a darkness to the work, and as you say, the child character Cassie um, bringing some light to it, and absolutely, you know. Um, having those multiple consciousnesses throughout the book, I suppose that leads me to think of another kind of consciousness and environmental consciousness. And you're very involved in a, a new global movement of climate writing. And I wondered if you could tell us what that is and, and what attracted you to climate writing. Um, well, I suppose I'll go back in history, actually. I lived off grid 
in my youth uh, for about 10 years in the west of Ireland, you know, without any power, lived very sustainably. We were all sitting around waiting for the world to end. And it seemed to be indeed, you know, kind of crossing over here. It It was a very poorly gendered approach to living at the time. You know, I'm talking about the 1980s and early 90s, and it was a very sexist group that I was living among and men had the men's roles and women had the women's roles and it took a long time to kind of withdraw from that and have the strength to um, see that if you're going to do something on an ecological base you know you need to take gender into account and you know move forward into into the 21st century but uh, how I got involved more recently is in last year in fact because of um, COVID, all the groups and classes and organisations and reading groups went online. And I was able, therefore, to join from Ireland, a join in on a climate writers group in Bristol in England. And I suppose that was the first time that I really thought about putting positive climate solutions into my writing. They don't occur at all in the groundsman. Mm-hmm. And that's OK. <laughs> you know, I... I, 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 I it made me think more about what am I doing with my writing? I know the groundsman was issue based, all my writing is issue based, but you can still put positive climate solutions into any issue based book about anything. If I think about Ronan Hessian's um, book, what was it called? It's behind me here, Leonard and Hungry Paul. Mm. There's just one line in it in which a character says something about that the only justification for not having a bird table in the back garden is that you have one in the front garden. And really, you know, that's a sustaining an environment for, for wildlife. So you can, you can slip these things into your, your romance novels, your historical novels, you know, any kind of, any kind of fiction. Um, it, could, it could just be about your, your main character happens to wear recycled clothes and no other mention at all, and that's fine, but what you're doing is you're normalising positive solutions to the climate crisis, so it doesn't have to be a book about the climate at all. Mm. You know, so that's that's where, I, where I'm coming from now with everything that I write. It's part of that, you know, the, the climate writers' groups are a worldwide mov- movement without any umbrella group, I have mm. to say, and they're not just about writing eulogies to nature. They're not just about writing about the end of the world. They're about putting these positive solutions into your fiction or your poetry or whatever it is that you're writing. So I'm involved in that at the moment at the Irish Writers' Centre where I teach creative writing. I'm involved in setting up a group there. So there's an actual course if, for people who want to want to learn about what that means. That's starting in March and running through to April. But from that, the idea is that the people that I'd be, be teaching and working with, they'll go forth to wherever they live and set up their own climate writers groups and put that seed of what I've just been explaining climate writing is into their writing groups. So even if it's not a climate writers group, even if it's just a writing group to have a whole session with their authors saying here why don't we put this in because we all know the gloom and doom scenarios it's getting too late we need to be talking and normalizing the solutions put it into your fiction please just a tiny bit so that's that's where I'm coming from with the climate writing yeah absolutely and I I love that ethos of creative writing being 
a positive force. Uh, you know, it's always been a, a way of exploring every aspect of our lives. We know that climate change touches on every aspect of our lives and creative writing, fiction, poetry, whatever it might be, you know, is, is the perfect vehicle for it that. It is. And, and I spent a whole year reading over, well over 100 books, fiction, trying to find positive climate solutions in the fiction. So if you're a writer, you know, I literally only found five. So, you know, start writing it because it's, it's, it's not in the fiction. <laughs> People will say, oh, yeah, it's a great nature writing book. And it might be, but it won't have the positive solutions in. So they're few and far between, especially poetry as well. You know, there, there are lots of eulogies to poetry, to nature, sorry, but that very few have the actual climate solutions in them. Yeah. And I, I think actually going back to what you were saying about the groundsman and needing that light, needing, you know, light as well as darkness to to draw the reader in, to pull the story along. I'm I'm very much reminded of the transition movement, which I, I think was founded in the the early two thousands in the UK. I think I can't remember the the name of the man who started it now, but Rob. The, Rob. Rob. Um, yes. Yeah, he was he was in West Cork. He lived near me. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. And and just you know, central to that movement is this idea that the doom and gloom doesn't get people to change their behaviour, but positive visioning for the future, having a positive goal or positive message can be so much more powerful in a way. And that's that's so fascinating to to hear that coming through in a creative, creative ways as well. So I would love to turn now to your book What Willow Says which will be coming out a bit later this year in May I've been very fortunate to have a sneak peek at it and I wanted to ask a little bit about how you came to write What Willow Says so it I, I don't know if you could briefly describe it for our listeners and and what made you want to write this book well basically I'll just outline what the book is about to begin mm. with because maybe listeners don't actually realise they, they they might not have read it yet you've had, you've had a pre-read um, so it's really about a deaf child and her hearing grandmother uh, who are living together um, through circumstances which you discover in the book and they're learning to communicate with each other through their shared love of trees and instead of hearing they, they experience with the, the beauty of sign language and that could be official sign language or home sign. And they find solace and understanding really um, through the shapes and the susurrations of leaves. And there are a lot of Irish myths and legends which come through as well, which kind of help to tell the, the, the story and, and, and repeat the imagery throughout the book. So there's a lot of watery tales which, which come into it because I live on the hinterlands of Dublin in the bogs of the Midlands. Um, between a river, there's a river outside my house, directly in front of the house, and there's a canal directly behind it. And then beyond the village is a big bog. So I've really written about the place that I live in. Um, and basically they they go out to the willow trees every day at the bottom of the garden to try and listen to what they say. So that's a thread running all through the book. So they they think that's what they're doing anyway in the story. Yeah. <laughs> But it's very much based on on where I live. It's a very watery place. It's a very, very um, industrial place up until last year when the um, EU rules said that they had to stop the industrial farming of peat 
So Bordnemona would be the company which would have sliced the bog down to about 15 feet below what it should have been on a massive industrial scale. So it's a very flat country, very low country, um, very brown where it's been cut away, bog. Um, some of it's rewilding naturally. It's about to be made, made into a wind farm of an oh. enormous scale. So, and some of it will be reflooded to stop. So it's, you know, it will be a carbon sink again because that once it's uh, the bog is cut, it releases so much carbon dioxide. Yeah. But once they, if they reflood it, that will be good. But they can't reflood the bit that they're going to build the wind farms on. So it's a changing landscape. So I wanted to capture that before it changed anyway in what Willow says. So I, you know, I definitely write about walking on the bogs and in the in the woods nearby and it's a very ancient place with lots of myths and I made up lots of new myths and stories to fit in with the story as well. It's a book that explores not only ecology and, and climate um, but also intersections of power, of, of gender as you've mentioned previously, um, place, disability and it occurred to me that there's there's so many huge issues. Uh, uh, you know, we've we've talked about how you can't extricate environmental issues from issues of gender and and other such things. But I I wanted to ask, how did you find a form that would allow you to take these issues on? It's definitely a fiction hybrid. You know, so I began to say, oh, is it auto fiction? You know, and then you get near the end and you realise, oh, it's entirely fiction and finding a form for it. I think with all those big themes, I wanted to wear them very lightly. I know that's such a cliche to say that, but, um, you know, I didn't want it to be something that everybody says, oh yeah, this is this is this and this is that. It's a, first and foremost, I want it to be a nice read and that you might need a cat to cry on at, by the end of it. You know, it's it was one of those which could have had too much in it and might have been saved for another book. Um, well, I felt that with the groundsman as well. You know, the groundsman had two kind of major, major things going on in it. So it was, it was trying to keep them as light as possible and to keep the book as positive as possible. So, in the end, it's all positive. I, I could have written a book about all the negative experiences of being deaf and of being hard of hearing. Um, you know, and and anyone who's who has difficulty hearing or is deaf can tell you can write 10 books on the difficulties about that um but i wanted i wanted to promote the positive positivities for people who are hearing and make them a little bit jealous you know about the the, the wonderful difference the wonderful things that we find now. I didn't write about all the, all the positive things. I didn't write about the fluid, wonderful ways that we have conversations where there's no understanding, and a hearing person might walk in the room and say, "What on earth are you two talking about?" Needs if you understand each other, and we don't care, and that works really well. So I haven't worked out a way of using dialogue yet to make that clear that it's actually absolutely fine <laughs> the way <laughs> yeah. the way the way we sometimes communicate in my family but that maybe that's for another book actually mm. so um and interestingly i made my narrator in what willow says a hearing person and you know my my hearing was more or less okay in my younger years uh not great um i needed you know speech therapy and I have noise-induced hearing loss from in my late teens and early twenties, 
and you know for the last 20 years I've needed hearing aids um, so writing from memory for the sounds a lot of the time and it was ironic about a year after I'd actually finished what would I says you know because it takes a long process for a book to come yeah. to publication so I'd already finished it when I got brand new hearing aids last year and, and they were so good compared to my old ones I suddenly realized oh my goodness half the book is wrong because because you can hear far more when you stand under a tree and listen to the susurrations of wind blowing through the leaves yeah. so um, I realized I had missed out quite a bit but sure anybody knows once once they realize that I can't hear that I was writing from a um from a limited hearing point of view yeah I, I wanted to ask you a bit about that actually because um I'm hard of hearing myself and just very aware actually I, I was I went on a walk the other day and I was very aware that um my time with birdsong it may be finite. And there's a lovely line at the start of What Willow Says. You're talking about the, the family at the centre of the book. Now we are trying to listen to each other and to trees. There is so much that we have never heard, so little time to hear it. I just love that line, that opening of this book, I, I think was so interesting because you, you separate hearing and listening in that sentence the you know irrespective of the character's deafness and their hearing that attempt to listen is still made there's a, a wonderful character in the book you you talk about them sort of tuning in with a heron um even though they're hearing different frequencies to this animal experiencing the world in completely different ways we can still tune in and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about listening how it plays out in the book like, you know, I, I kind of meld the two in my own life as an artist anyway, you know, the, the observation side, you know, the John Burgess ways of, ways of seeing. And I think, you know, with you doing some work with, with deep listening as well, which is to do with, do with hearing the sounds of music. And so the, the, the listening is more to do with the deep observation. So it's not necessarily to do with the sounds which are coming into your ears. And I think that's the basic thread going through the whole book. Yeah. You know, and whether it's through expressing emotion or whether it's about enjoying nature and listening to the sounds of the trees, you know, it's it's all about are you really paying attention and being in the moment. So I think, you know, that's that is something, yes, that that's that's been central to what I've been doing as an artist, whether that's being through an artist as a fact you know a fine artist a visual artist or whether it's as a writer you know or, or to teaching those subjects you know it's it's the observational skills I think which um, are so important to, to to getting any of that information down on the page. Yeah I think it's fair to say the book is just beautifully observed the the scene with the heron that I've I've mentioned very early on in the book but one that I'm sure readers of fiction, poetry, nature writing, non-fiction, this is just so wonderfully observed, beautifully written, musical um, in its rhythms, uh, such a, a lovely um, scene that I, I read just the other day and really stayed with me. Um, and I think that musicality as well, you know, it's, it's quite tricky sometimes to get that musicality if you're deaf and 
you know whether you, whether you get your musicality through through vibrations or whether you get it through your through the vibrations in your ears or whether you get it through the patterns and the colors in front of you you know it's, it's how do you describe that in words and you know so, some of the musicality of my writing comes from taking those visual images and putting it into words some of it comes from I had a Welsh grandmother who lives with us who only spoke Welsh after she had a stroke so there was that musicality that's that's within her language and I didn't understand her language and I don't speak Welsh but it's the musicality of her voice you know is deeply ingrained in my psyche and all my aunts who who, who would clatter away in Welsh you know, and then there's the Irish side, of course, you know, and, you know, all my family here speak speak Irish and there's that musicality. And especially when I was living in Cork, where people would combine the Irish and and English Irish as well in mm. one sentence. And there's that music, music to those sounds. So it's all these, these different forms of communicating. They all have a musicality to them. So, yeah, if I've got captured that in my writing, thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right. Those those different cadences, you know, coming through in the characters' voices and the groundsman, each of them is so distinct. And, and now in what Willow says, I think the narrator is very alive to that and very alive to different ways of experiencing those rhythms and, and cadences as well, closely observed, you know, through the narrator. It really struck me, actually, that, the bog just as a, a place of history describes so many of these myths and and histories that go into it. It's a it's a landscape that literally will show us our history, will preserve it. And um, if you dig into it, history is right there in front of you. The, the issues of climate are not happening elsewhere. It's it's happening just down the road. Definitely. And I, and that was one, that was an issue that I kind of had really, I put so many myths in and it can get a bit of a cliche for Irish people because, you know, we all grow up with our myths being taught to us in junior school and it's with Coo Cullen this and, you know, we, we know all the, all the great stories of Irish myths growing up in Ireland. So I didn't want to overdo it in the book. And I didn't want to kind of exclude readers from other countries who wouldn't necessarily know about them. So mm-hmm. I kind of, I, Anybody who's an expert in Irish mythology will see that I've I've messed around with some of the myths, <laughs> and I've made up new ones. And um, Boyne, I I'd made her from the River Boyne. I've made her come all the way down to where I am, which which she didn't. But you know, it's we have Bridget of, of Kildare as well, who was a real person. In she she was an abbess, um, so I draw on her as well. And the Irish language I throw in a bit off as well. Not that I'm great at it at all, but it's in there. Yeah, fantastic. Living, a living landscape, I suppose. Not, you know, the, the myths themselves aren't static. There's new ones written, as you say, just as, as the land is, is changing and alive. And, you know, new stories to be written. Having turned towards climate writing and having this ethos of instilling practical and positive responses to climate crisis in in your fiction has that changed your practice at all in in other ways um well i still use the same approach of show don't tell Mm. because it's very easy to think oh i'll insert a positive climate solution in here and it looks like you're giving a a lecture on exposition (laughs) it's and you know and and a lot of non-fiction is very 
gives it a lot of exposition as well and it, it can it really jars the writing so I still have to be very careful I, I'm, I'm one of my editors picked that up straight away get that out you know what, what are you trying to give me a lecture for and I suddenly realized oh I was just shoving it in for the sake of putting a positive climate solution in you know it has to be part of the story too so in that sense no it was very easy to do once I decided I was going to do it I don't know why I didn't before Although I suppose the work that's coming up now that, that, that I'm working on at the moment is still around the change around me, you know, it's the changes that I described earlier, which are happening around me. Mm. It's very much about that and about the people and how it affects them as well. Now, it's not a kind of doom and gloom ecology story at all. It's, it's, that's not what the byline would be if it were written on the back of the book, but those issues come into it because I'm conscious of putting positive climate solutions into my stories now. So yes, they get slipped in, um, but I still have to be careful about not putting in exposition and, and lecturing the reader. I agree just from what I've read of, of your work so far, the, the character, the voice, the, the people, as you say, are central, absolutely central to both of your your books that are published or very soon to be published. I wondered if you could describe for us your current writing community. I know you're still part of your your original writers group. It's really, really important. And I suppose since that first writing group, um, my community has expanded massively. You know, I, I joined another writing group, an online one, uh, which I actually won membership to through some write, writing award through Greywood Arts, which was the Carers um, Award, which was a many faceted prize, I have to say. It was one of the biggest prizes and the least publicised one I've ever had and heard of because I had a residency in their writing retreat down in County Cork. Um, but that wasn't the end of it. I had a free editor who edited an entire book for me. I had a membership to an online writing group, to which I'm still a member, um, and there were various, various, various other prizes. Oh, yeah, Kit Deval sponsored spending money for the residency. There were, there were so many different elements to this prize, and it's, and it's still ongoing because I'm still a member of Indulge in Writing, which is an online writing group. And that online writing group, won by Sharon Thompson, so many authors in giving courses and I have given courses online th through that as well and so many guest editors and so many guest anything to do with writing like you would have in the National Centre for Writing and the Irish Writers' Centre you know get all those, we got all of those so that was really empowering and that online group then through social media we all support each other as writers and I think when I first brought out the groundsman, like I said, I, I hadn't been involved in the writing community at all. I didn't know any other writers apart from my little group here in the library. So it was through social media that I got to know other writers and through the Irish Writers' Centre as well. I have to say that was a really good way of meeting other writers. And, you, and, I, and I, I don't think that ever ends for a writer. You, you always need those those peers who are, who are happy to kind of do a quick read through 
So, oh, no, no, you're going in completely wrong direction. And this is why, um, you know, they, people that you feel comfortable enough with that you don't need this kind of sandwich of love on either side of saying, you know, what the positive criticism, constructive criticism, you know, it's a, so where you're not going to be kind of a delicate flower if they say, well, look, what have you thought of doing this? This would make it really good. So those, those people are really, really important as well. And I think, you know, just once it, once you become a published writer, there are, there are all these other things that you need from other published writers as well. <laughs> you know, even if it's just down to a, a quote, cover quote, you know, you, you need to have those contacts. And I think an, uh, a novice writer starting out, that's going to be really hard like it was for me if you don't have any contacts in the writing business. So joining those writing groups is, is absolutely essential. And as far as the climate writers groups goes, I mean, that's so useful for getting the information on other existing books which have positive climate solutions in and also for getting the infant the actual scientific eco facts in front of you you know so you can do your research you know so you can read something like Jonathan Porritt's book or, or listen to his videos and get the actual correct information just like anything that you're researching as a writer in fiction you research it don't you so that you get your facts right so putting in positive climate solutions you really need to get that information and because I didn't do a degree in ecology you know I'm having to do that research so we kind of share different guests guests who have got that knowledge with our writers groups and I've done quite a few interviews ready for my Irish climate writers group so that um, I can show them to to the, the fiction writers and say here are the non-fiction writers who've written about climate change with positive solutions in and even someone like I'll get the book um, Dara McAnulty Diary. Yeah absolutely. You know he's a perfect example of putting positive solutions into the climate crisis in his writing now it's not fiction writing but he's a great read you know if you if you want the, if you want some really good information he's great for that yeah I, I'm sure there's there's many writers out there who this year in particular have found you know the the digital sphere as you say the social media online writers groups as well to just be so useful to keep our creativity going um despite the difficult circumstances and I, i'm so interested to hear as well that the the research goes along with the kind of close observation that you've previously mentioned there's the the immediacy of of that observation but even if it's fiction you you back it up with with research yes i, I made that my mistake with my first book the groundsman um it's a very expensive mistake i'm sure my publisher was ready to kill me at the time because it was you know the the final edits had been done and it was proofs been done and it was ready to go to print and i heard on the radio that there weren't any moles in ireland and i assumed that there were i just thought oh well i haven't seen any mole hills here so I, <laughs> I I didn't think that I needed to research that at all. And it was a major theme going all the way through the groundsmen of these molehills. And we suddenly found, oh, no, they never came over the Ice Age. We don't have any moles in Ireland. and We never have. So um, that was really, really bad lack of research. But I didn't even think I needed to research it, but I did. So I had to rewrite the book then, um, you know, change everything from molehills to something else. I wondered if you have any other advice apart from this excellent advice to do one's research, but anything you would say to other writers 
who would like to to write about nature in a, a fictional way that is still engaged with the reality of you know what's what's happening in the world well their, their story is unique to them and i i would say definitely go for it and your your story is incredible and needs to be written down and if you can join a climate writers group all well and good or set up your own and be, join other like-minded people and see see read around the subject as well I think you know that's that's not going to destroy what you write you're not going to end up copying other people but you'll get an idea of what's been written and more importantly like I said before it hasn't been written enough yet you know that there's so few examples of nature writing fictional nature writing with positive climate solutions written into them you're currently taking part in a virtual UNESCO Cities of Literature residency with us, um, along with some other writers from other UNESCO cities around the world. Your book, What Willow Says, will be coming out later this year. Can I ask what else you're working on at the moment or what you might be turning your hand to next? Well, as part of the residency, I've been writing a short story uh, about the connections between Dublin and Norwich and the hinterlands around those two cities. Now, I know all cities are built on water, so that just kind of appealed to me immediately that I could get into the water, as it were. So my short story has been looking at, again, you know, put, putting gender, power and place together rather than excluding us women from, from the nature that writing and putting a bit of um, positive climate solution into that. And there are so many similarities between the two places and so many differences, but I've been writing a short story about that and setting it to video and music and trying to see how that comes together. And that's, that's kind of following in the theme of other short stories that I've written as well, which are all kind of water-based. And I suppose, like I said, because I live so close to the water, it, it, it always comes in, <laughs> comes into my writing. That's a, that's a vehicle for writing. Um, so I'm busy writing that at the moment. And I have about three projects which are coming up, which are novels. And I got all of the ideas last year to write it, but I just wasn't well enough. I had COVID, you know, 11 months ago. So that took about four months, five months out of my year recovering from that. But even though I couldn't actually write, all the ideas were coming into my head and I was jotting them down into notebooks. So now I have three novels on the go and I really should just concentrate on one because I'm not doing any of them any favours by, by splitting myself into three. So I'll have to concentrate on one. Um, like I said, I described one, which is the follow one on into the box and how they're changing. The other one is more to do with correspondences that I've been having with um, two gentlemen who are English teachers in India. And that correspondence has been going on for about four or five years digitally and sometimes by letter, sometimes by email, sometimes by, um, say, Facebook or something. So that's kind of fictionalising that to an extent. And that's that's more of a comedy, to be honest. And I don't use your right humour, but that's the way it's going. And then what was the other one? 
yeah the the other one has, has hasn't really kicked off yet so mm. I, I don't really want to say that because things books can change you think you start one book and it can turn into something completely different and I love the way it does that you know I can plot and plan and sometimes I'm a real plotter and sometimes I'm a real panster and I'll go completely yeah. off <laughs> what I'd planned to do altogether so I, I so I'm glad that you know I wasn't commissioned to do these you know I, I don't have an agent who has said right you're doing three books that's the book deal with your you have to commit to doing three books in five years and they have to be about this this and this because because uh, I could go completely left field and be com- something completely different so anyway I've, I've plenty to be writing I've an arm length to get out of me before I finish those three anyway fantastic I was going to ask actually but how do you balance so many different projects but it, it sounds like that's um maybe something you're you're trying to uh, change a little bit but so interesting to hear that they're different genres different tones different approaches you're taking it's the end of our talk today lynn thank you so much it's been really fascinating to talk to you i cannot wait to to read um, more of what willow says when it's out in may thanks very much flo and thanks ever so much for inviting me thanks for listening and many thanks to lynn and flo if you have questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre, check out our Facebook page and sign up to our newsletter over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. We also have a free Discord community that you can jump into full of lovely writers discussing their craft and what they're up to. You can find the link to that down in the show notes. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation by heading over to the National Centre for Writing website and hitting the Support Us button in the top right-hand menu. Please do subscribe and follow the podcast and leave a review if you can because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again, keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode with Jesse Greengrass. Get vaccinated. <laughs>